Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, Great Men and Women of Faith, with a message entitled, Esther, Submitting to God's Purposes. So let's turn in our Bibles to Esther, chapter 1 to 8. One of the most important lessons any new Christian must learn is that God is always in control. Once you awaken to the fact that God is sovereign, you'll never view life the same way. You know, many of us who have been infused with evolutionary ways of thinking, you know, we've come to see things as random as, as chance happenings. But when we become Christians, a new way of seeing comes into our hearts. We see things as the outworking of God's unstoppable purposes. Every once in a while, we're tempted to see things in the old way. Ah, bad luck, we say, rather than, I wonder what God was up to. Or that sure was lucky. Or things just happened to work out that way. Dumb luck, rather than, thank you, Jesus, for your grace. But slowly, ever so slowly, this dawning realization of the truth comes upon us. God's always in control. His kingdom rules over all. He's working out his purposes in the world. But once we learn about God's sovereignty, we have only learned the first in a series of lessons. The next lesson goes like this. God sometimes uses what, in our view, are unlikely people to work out his purposes in the world. And I hope that you might be one of them. Now, we're looking at faith lessons from some of the men and women of the Bible. And frankly, with some of them, the lessons seem to be easy. Abraham, Ruth, David, Daniel, I mean, the list goes on and on. Great men and women of the faith, they are rightfully our heroes. But sometimes, God works out his purposes in unexpected ways. Really, that's what we find in the life of Esther. Before I tell her story, let's look at some of the details of the book of Esther. This book is different than all of the other books in the Bible. In almost all other cases, the Bible provides us with an evaluation of people's lives. David was a man after God's own heart. Ruth declares to Naomi, your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. The kings of Israel did what was right or what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, these are all evaluations. But nothing, no evaluative statement is ever given of Esther. In fact, Esther is the only book in the entire Bible where God is not even mentioned, not once. On top of that, outside of the Song of Solomon, Esther is the only Old Testament book that is never quoted in the New Testament. It's as if the Bible simply records the events of Esther's life and then allows the reader to come up with their own opinions of what they should make of her. Should we consider Esther one of the great women of the Bible? Well, some say yes and some say no. There are all manner of reasons why we might see Esther in different lights. But regardless of what you make of Esther, one thing seems clear. The people whom God uses are sometimes unlikely and often surprising. And that's the point of application for all of us. For everyone who believes you have to be perfect for God to use you, well, think again. Sometimes God uses compromised persons. Sometimes people who exhibit almost no faith at all are suddenly roused by God for a great purpose. If, in fact, you believe that someone like you can never be used by God, think again. The book of Esther will give you great hope. So I'm reading Esther chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. 
Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all the officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of periphery, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. You know, the book of Esther takes place in a remarkable time in history. Israel had been defeated by the Babylonians, and the entire population had been deported, taken into exile in Babylon. That was the time of Daniel, who was the young deportee into Babylon, and he refused to eat the king's food and put his entire life at stake. He was a Jew, he was a child of God, and he would not pollute himself with non-kosher food. His friends refused to bow to a foreign god. Later, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den because of his insistence that only God was the God of Israel and all other gods were idols. I mean, those were the days when great men and women had raw courage. They faced paganism and won the day because of their faith in God. But Esther's story is different. You know, eventually the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians, and now Israel lived under the reign of another foreign power. Cyrus the Great was then king, and Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, whom we find as king in the beginning of this book, was the grandson of Cyrus, and he had now become king. Now, this Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, ruler of the known world, decided to hold a banquet and display for all his people his might, his wealth, and his splendor. And in the end of the banquet, he decided to have his wife, Queen Vashti, be paraded before all the people and show how gorgeous and how sexy and how fantastic she was. And Vashti said, I'm not going to be leered at by a bunch of dirty-minded men. And she sent a note back to her husband, the most feared and brutal king of earth, saying, Dear loving husband, what are you thinking? Forget it, take a hike, take a bath. You can do anything you want, just don't include me. Have a nice day, Vashti, or something like that. The king called the advisors together, and they all decided that Vashti had to be deposed because if she were allowed to remain queen, then the rest of the women of the empire might think that their opinion mattered as well. And then who knows what would happen, maybe chaos. I mean, clearly this was not the day when women were respected. Enter Esther. She's a Jewish exile living in Persia. She's young, she's beautiful. And Xerxes commands that young, beautiful women like her be, be taken from all over the empire so that he could find a wife, a suitable queen. So he would fill his harem with women. Then one after another, he would sleep with them and then pick one that pleased him. The rest would return to the harem and live as widows until the day of their death. And Esther was chosen and taken into the harem. I personally think that this would have been like a death sentence. 
It would have destroyed the ideal, the, the young Jewish girl marrying a young Jewish man, falling in love, expressing their faith and faithfulness to the God of Israel, having children, raising a family in the faith, and loving each other until death parted them. God simply had other plans for Esther. Now, how did Esther feel about all that? Well, we don't know. I'm reading Esther 2, verses 8 to 10. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Now, before we go on, I want to contrast Esther to Daniel, a young man also taken against his will and put into a foreign court that opposed the worship of the one true God. Listen to what happened to Daniel from Daniel 1 verse 8. It says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food in the wine. Indeed, Daniel put his life on the line for that principle. But Esther, in contrast, ate the king's food and participated in everything. So what do we make of her? Is she a compromised woman? The Bible makes no comment. Nothing is mentioned of Esther's God. Is she just a cultural Jew at this point? No comment. Did she see God for wisdom? No comment. Perhaps she was willing to compromise to get ahead. Well, no comment. Just a simple, straightforward declaration of what actually happened. Some of you who are listening to me might yourself have made multiple compromises to your faith. Some of you have compromised your faith to get where you are. Some of you have compromised your faith to, to get a good mark in university. Some of you have compromised your faith to get ahead in business. Some of you have compromised your faith to get the man or woman you wanted to marry. Some of you have compromised in so many areas you don't even know who you are anymore. So stay with me, for there's so much more to say about Esther's story and about God's surprising purposes. We're so grateful for all of our listeners right across this beautiful country. And if you'd like to become a part of the team of Back to the Bible Canada, well, this month we'd like to invite you to become a monthly partner or also to participate in our special match campaign this month. So for every dollar you give towards the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again or In Doubt, another dollar will be given up to $50,000, expanding our opportunity to minister God's Word across Canada and beyond. If you've been listening and perhaps you've never taken the opportunity to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada before, you know what? This just might be the perfect time. Join us in our $50,000 match campaign in October or become a monthly partner. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or donate securely online at backtothebible.ca. I'm reading Esther 2, 16 to 18. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, 
and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all the officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, that might have been the end of the story, but as you and I know, this story is the remarkable story of the unstoppable purposes of God. And Esther was to have a date with destiny. And it happened in the most remarkable manner. Esther 3, verses 1 to 4. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. Now Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. In order to understand the interaction, one must understand the history. Agag was an Amalekite. And some of you will remember that Moses fought with the Amalekites in the book of Exodus, and as long as Moses held up his hands, Israel won. Some of you remember that King Saul refused to carry out the Lord's commands against the Amalekites and so forfeited the kingdom. There was a great historical animosity between Israel and Amalek. They were sworn enemies. Now, this man Haman, according to Jewish tradition, was a direct descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites, and Mordecai, a Jew, absolutely refused to acknowledge him. And the dislike between the two men was immediate and intense. But Haman's hatred was demonic. I'm reading Esther 3, verses 5 to 6. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so they had made known to him the people of Mordecai. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, just so we understand the matter, let's see what's at stake. It's not just that Haman is like Hitler. He is. He wants to destroy the entire Jewish race, but he's more. If Haman had succeeded, all the promises made to Abraham by God would have failed. And what's more, if Haman had succeeded, Jesus would not have come into the world. This plot is not just a plot against the Jews, it's a plot against the love of God and his plan to save the ruined human race. And as we read this book, this book that doesn't mention the name of God, which presents us with a woman whose faith we puzzle about, suddenly we're presented with this picture. Is God able to keep his promises? Are his purposes really unstoppable? Will there be a Bible at all? Is there going to be a story of the great love of God? Will there be a John 3.16? And while these questions seem to hang in the air, enter Esther. I'm reading Esther chapter 4, verses 4 to 8. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her of the plan to murder the Jews, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. 
Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square out in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Now, all this seems like a no-brainer. All she has to do is use whatever influence she has. After all, I mean, it seems like the king is crazy about her. She just needs to convince the king to put a stop to the madness. And then amazingly and unbelievably, this woman who always seems to obey her uncle simply refuses. Forget it. I'm not going there. It's incredible. Why would she turn her back on her people and the entire history of redemption? I mean, why? Listen to how she responds to her uncle found in Esther 4 verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king in these 30 days. You know that there are some people who simply will never risk their lives to do something. I mean, they dream about living in comfort and growing old that way. Their lives aren't burning with a passion that says, you know, I'm going to die anyway. I have but one life to live. I'm going to beat the devil and make my stand for Christ and his glory. There are Christians who show up in church when it's convenient, and they try to make sure that life is as trouble-free as possible, and that's it, and that's sad, and I, and I hope that's not you. But Mordecai will simply not let Esther get off that easily. In effect, he compels her to face one of the most basic facts of life. And to each of us who make personal comfort the God of our lives, I want you to hear what Mordecai has to say for what he says is the key to understanding the entire book of Esther. Esther 4, verses 12 to 14. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You know, I want to break this speech into three components. Point number one, you won't escape with your life either. You think you're safe in not approaching the king, but in fact, your life right now is at risk. You're as vulnerable as you can possibly imagine. And here's the second point. If you don't act, deliverance will come from another place. God will act. He will defend his great name. The future of redemption really doesn't depend on you at all, but you have been given a moment in time when you can make a mark and take a chance for eternity. And here's a third point. Who knows, but you have come to your place for such a time as this. That's a staggering thought. I mean, that whole harem experience was for this moment. Who knows why you have been in this place in your life that you're in. Those simple words comes a deafening and crushing roar of a picture of reality. It was never dumb luck or your compromises or your plans that put you in the place that you're in. You were put there for a moment, a stunning moment, where you have come to choose what you must do. So let's apply that. I'll do so in three ways. Number one, 
The life of Esther teaches us that God's purposes are unstoppable. Think of it this way. The evangelization of the world really is going to happen whether you participate or not. The world will in the end of the day be full of the glory of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the direction of all of history. It's going to happen whether you get on board or not. Here's lesson number two. The life of Esther teaches us that God will never allow his people to be destroyed. Jesus promises that the very gates of hell will not destroy the church. God will always keep a people for himself. Yeah, local churches may come and suffer ruin, but God will not allow his people to be destroyed. And here's number three. The life of Esther teaches us that even if you've been a fence-sitter for most of your life, and even if you've not been willing to pick up your cross and follow Jesus in the past, it's not too late. Turn with white-hot passion to Christ. Turn to his gospel. Turn to evangelism. God may yet, because of his grace, awaken you and allow you to play a role in his kingdom. Because truth be told, today is as momentous a day as it was in Esther's day. Right now, a great number of the human race stands ready to enter into a Christless eternity. They will face God's judgment without a mediator. I know, you may not have the power to reach everyone, but who but knows that in your neighborhood or at your job or at your university class, you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. If you learn from Esther, You can shake the cobwebs of complacency from your life and be used by God to rescue a great company of people. And here's the good news. Your position in life and the place where you can do that is not an accident. God has placed you where you are. Make your choice. John, you've got me on the edge of my seat now. How does the story end? Yeah, that's good. That's good. You know, Esther Esther becomes the great deliverer for God's people. I mean, that's the unlikely part of the story. She is one of God's great people who rescues his people from the hour of death. I mean, how how you know unbelievable that would seem because, you know, when we encounter her and a woman who never mentions God, uh, she is used by God in this powerful way. And so uh, her, you know, her memory should always live with God's people that she represents someone who is used by God in great ways when we wouldn't think that they would be. And, and I think maybe, Ben, you and I should remember that about all of our lives. I mean, especially for those individuals who are really good at whipping ourselves and saying, look at all the places I've failed the Lord in the past. And because I've failed the Lord in the past in these ways, I can never be used by God in the future. Um, The answer to that is, yes, you can. There is a Bible example. Read the book of Esther, learn from her life, and then begin to emulate her and become courageous in the hour in which God calls you. What a great encouragement. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. 
You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and now confirmed special friends and musicians Shane and Angela Weeb. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, you'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. The Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Caribbean Cruise is a unique opportunity for connection, and we'd love to see you join us. Come on your own or with family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.